Well, our sermon text this morning is Psalm 136, and uh, if you have read it before uh, this morning and familiarized yourself with it, you may notice there's a certain repetition in every verse. Every verse ends with the phrase, for his steadfast love endures forever. And I was thinking about this, and someone this morning, uh, I'll blame Eric for this, uh, suggested uh, to have this more of like a responsive reading. And so I'm going to do something that we don't normally do, which is always a scary thing to do, and ask you to stand uh, for the reading of God's Word. And to help me read the sermon text, I'm going to ask you all uh, to repeat this, the stanza, the refrain, in every verse. So you're going to say, when I say the first part of the verse, you're going to say, for his steadfast love endures forever. So let's... Uh, Read God's Word together this morning from Psalm 136. I'm reading from the ESV translation. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for His steadfast love endures forever. To Him who alone does great wonders... For his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who made the great lights, for his steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day, for his steadfast love endures forever. The moon and the stars to rule over the night, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, for his steadfast love endures forever, and brought Israel out from among them, for his steadfast love endures forever. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea in two, for his steadfast love endures forever, and made Israel pass through the midst of it, for his steadfast love endures forever, but overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who led his people through the wilderness, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down great kings, for his steadfast love endures forever, and killed mighty kings, for his steadfast love endures forever. Sihon, king of the Amorites, for his steadfast love endures forever. And Og, king of Basham, for his steadfast love endures forever. And gave their land as a heritage, for his steadfast love endures forever. A heritage to Israel, his servant, for his steadfast love endures forever. It is he who remembered us in our low estate, for his steadfast love endures forever. And rescued us from our foes. For his steadfast love endures forever. He gives food to all flesh. For his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven. For his steadfast love endures forever. Amen. You may be seated. Well, let's pray and ask God to uh, teach us his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. That uh, you give it to us as a, a, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. That by your holy word you... You show us and reveal to us the way of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, your Son, and you reveal to us how we are best uh, to uh, to do your will in all things, in worship and prayer in our daily lives. And we ask once again that you'd work in us by your Spirit, that you might give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your Word, for it's in Christ's name and for his glory that we pray. Amen. 
Well, I thought it would be fitting uh, the Sunday after Thanksgiving that we look at Psalm 136. A lot of times on the first Sundays of the month, we go through the Psalms one at a time, and uh, we're looking at this one a little bit out of order. I, I jumped ahead quite a bit to get to this Psalm uh, 136. And the reason I picked it is, as is probably obvious as you read it, it's a Psalm of, of Thanksgiving. And this Psalm, this great Psalm of Thanksgiving, what it does here, the psalmist, it, he, he points out, he spells out for us a number of the reasons why we are to give thanks, heartfelt thanks and praise to our God. Now, each of these uh, Psalms, 26 verses, as you just read uh, with me, ends with that simple but profound refrain where we said, For his steadfast love endures forever. The King James renders it as his mercy endures forever. That word steadfast love that you said over and over again, it's it's a hard word to define from the Hebrew, but it's we translate it as steadfast love or mercy. It has the idea of God's covenant love for his people. His covenant love uh, which never fails for his people. Now uh you know keep in mind that the Psalms are meant to be sung. That they're meant to be read, they're meant to be prayed and, and preached and sung. And I, when I saw that, that refrain repeated 26 times in the psalm, it made me think of uh, some of the more modern praise and worship music. Now much, this is my grumpy old man opinion, but much modern praise music uh, is filled with what I think is mindless repetition. It's just saying a, a simple, simplistic phrase over and over and over again. And that being the case, I don't think it's any wonder that the faith of so many professing Christians seems at times to be so shallow. Shallow worship makes for shallow Christians. It's one of the reasons why I hope that when we read these psalms and, and pray them and sing them together that you see why singing the psalms is so important. Singing some of the great classic hymns that teach so much of God's Word and include so much of God's Word in them is so important. Now, this, this refrain that you all repeated with me 26 times in reading our sermon text, it it, maybe when you were reading it, it felt kind of monotonous. Maybe it felt kind of like, don't want to say meaningless repetition. Maybe it sort of felt that way a little bit, but that's really not what it is at all. This, this repetition of that refrain, I think, serves to emphasize that it's really the steadfast love and mercy of God that's the source of all the great things that we thank Him for in the psalm. It's the source, it's the cause of all the great wonders, verse 4, that our God has done and for which we owe Him heartfelt thanks. It's in, in many ways, it's the steadfast love of God and His mercy towards us that's the main reason that we are to give thanks to Him in all things, even in this, this psalm. And so each of the things mentioned throughout these 26 verses of Psalm 136 is really to be seen by us as an example and an evidence of God's steadfast love and a reason that we are to give Him Thanks. And so as you read through the psalm, you probably noticed, maybe you noticed as we were reading through it this morning, that the psalm kind of takes us on a brief, you know, a, an abbreviated tour of, of the redemptive history of Israel in the Old Testament. It's a survey of God's, God's dealings and salvation of his people in the Old Testament. God is to be thanked, first of all, for his steadfast love in creation and providence in verses 4 through 9. And the wording in verses 4 through 9 points us back to the Genesis creation account in those early chapters of the book of Genesis. Now, the next thing that the psalmist points us to is God's great work of salvation, not just creation and providence, but God's work of salvation 
in redeeming his people from slavery in Egypt. And that's found in the book of Exodus. The verses 10 through 15 of this psalm, in a very condensed form, takes us through God's work of saving his people in the book of Exodus and his continued preservation of them throughout the wilderness wanderings is mentioned briefly in verse 16. The next thing that is uh, praised, God is praised for and thanked for in the psalm, he not only brought his people out of slavery in Egypt, he not only got them through the wilderness wanderings and sustained them, uh, but he also led them safely into Canaan, into the promised land. He overcame and conquered and killed their enemies and gave his people their land just as he had promised. That's what's mentioned in verses 17 through 24. So you have, really what you have in the psalm is, in very condensed, abbreviated fashion, a survey of Genesis through Deuteronomy and what God did for his people in those books. Now, when you read of the Old Testament historical accounts of creation and providence and God's redeeming of his people from slavery in Egypt, you read of God's miraculous preserving his people and leading them and defending them through the wilderness wanderings. You read of him getting them safely into the possession of the land of promise after all those years. What this psalm teaches us then in doing that is that all of those things that you read about in Genesis through Deuteronomy and elsewhere as well, all of those things are then examples and evidence of God's steadfast love to his people toward us in Jesus Christ. That's what we are to think about when you read those texts. It may not be the thing that jumps off the page at you. It's not always mentioned in those texts, but the psalmist is saying, here's how you should look at God's dealings with his people in those parts of Scripture. And the reason I say that is the salvation of Israel from slavery in Egypt is really the great salvation event of the Old Testament. And as the great salvation event in the Old Testament It was really a type and a foreshadowing of the gospel of Jesus Christ and our salvation uh, in Christ from our sins by the grace of God. When you read the story, the account of the Exodus, you're reading a hint of the gospel. You're reading a foreshadowing of what God did to save you from your sin. For just as God rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt with an outstretched arm and a mighty hand and brought them safely home, Even so, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, God redeems you and me from slavery to our sin. He preserves and defends us throughout the time of our earthly pilgrimage and will also certainly bring us all the way home to heaven. It's It's an echo of the same thing you read about in the book of Exodus. It's a picture of your salvation and mine through faith in Christ. And and what the psalmist, I think, is telling us is, as the scripture says in other places, as we're going to see, is that God finishes what he starts. God finishes what he starts, and why does he do that? Why can he be counted upon to do that for you if you're in Christ? It's because, what did you say 26 times? For his steadfast love to you endures forever. So the first thing I want to look at in our text is found in the first three verses of our psalm, and that is we are to give thanks to the Lord for his perfections. Verses 1 through 3 kind of introduces us to the main theme of the psalm, which is also a command and an exhortation for us to give thanks to our God. Look at verses 1 through 3. The psalmist says there, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. So three times 
Here in the beginning of the psalm, and once again to, to make for just for good measure, in verse 26, we are exhorted and commanded to give thanks to our God. And that threefold repetition of that command, I think, should get our attention. It should serve to emphasize the importance of this command, how much we need and have reason to give thanks to God. And think about this. Giving thanks to God is is really one of the main aspects, or it should be one of the main aspects of Christian worship. Um, one of the main things that we should do every time we meet is to thank God, not just in our praying, but also in our singing, and also in our preaching and hearing of God's word, in our in our celebrating the Lord's Supper, you might know that uh, the NIV renders 1 Corinthians 10.16. It mentions this as the cup of thanksgiving or the cup of blessing that we bless. You might know the word the word Eucharist. Sometimes, uh, a lot of times that's in Roman Catholic circles, but we sometimes refer to this as the Eucharist. It comes from the Greek word for giving thanks, and that is why that is the case. Giving thanks to God, you might know, is mentioned in connection with prayer, so often in Scripture that we are to pray with thanksgiving, it's mentioned in connection with prayer so often in the Bible that it's almost impossible really to conceive of prayer without thinking of it in connection with thanksgiving in it. It has often been said, and you may have heard me say a number of times, that the, the Christian life, uh, that the main, the primary, not the only motivation, but the primary motivation for living the Christian life is what? It starts with the letter G, gratitude. The main motivation for living the Christian life or seeking to obey God in all things is gratitude for our salvation that he has given us by his grace. Paul says as much in Romans 12, verse 1, where he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, and maybe you've read this a thousand times and didn't jump off the page at you, he appeals to us, therefore, what? By the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. By the mercies of God, by the steadfast love of God. In other words, because of, or in light of, God's mercies toward you in Jesus Christ, therefore offer up your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Gratitude, giving thanks, is a a huge part of the Christian life. It's impossible to live the Christian life rightly without it. Now, notice that before God, uh, God's mighty acts of creation, providence, and salvation are mentioned in verses 4 through 26, the psalmist stops before he even gets to there, and he directs us and commands us to give thanks to God for who he is and not just for what he does. We don't want to jump the gun and skip past that. We are to give thanks to God for who he is and not just for what he has done and for what he does for us. Matthew Henry writes the following. He says, Give thanks to the Lord, not only because he does good, but because he is good. And he says, All streams must be traced to the fountain. We praise and thank God for the good things he has done, and he's done those good things because he himself, as the psalmist says in verse 1, he is good. That's why the psalmist says that. Give thanks to the Lord, verse 1, for he is good. God is good. You ever just thank God because he's good? And not just because he's been good to you, which he has, and which we should thank him for, but thank God that he himself is good and is the fountain of all the good that we receive at his hand.
It's also because God is good because of that. That's why His steadfast love endures forever. That is the reason for that. Not only that, but we are to give thanks to God. Verse 2, why? Because He is the God of gods. That may seem like a strange thing for the Scripture to say, but it's a very common refrain in the Scripture. Are there more gods than one? No, there's only one God. But many false gods abound in this world, many idols and false gods. And so the Scripture says He is the God of gods. He is the God above all the false gods of the world. In verse 3, we, we thank Him because He's the Lord of lords. We give thanks to our God because He is the one true and living God who rules over all things for His own glory and for our benefit. Now, Lord of lords, that may sound familiar. We looked at it last Sunday in our sermon text in Revelation 19, Verse 16, Lord of Lords is also a title ascribed there to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Lord of Lords, and he is the reason we thank God for that. So it's not only because God is the one true and living God, uh, but it's, it's, it's only because he is the one true and living God that his steadfast love to us in Jesus Christ really can endure forever. None but God himself can promise and deliver on such a thing as that. If he is not the Lord of lords and God of gods and King of kings, he couldn't promise to us and deliver that his steadfast love to us will always endure forever. But because he is the one true and living God, he can promise that to us in Christ and deliver on it. And so that's one more reason for us to give thanks and praise to our God. Now the second, the second reason, not just God's perfections, uh, but the second reason that the psalmist gives us here for giving thanks to the Lord is for, look at verse 4, is for his great wonders that he has done. In verse 4 it says, To him who alone does great wonders, for his steadfast love endures forever. So he goes from who God is to what God has done. Both those things, for both those things, God is worthy of praise and thanksgiving. Now you might notice that in most of our English translations, many of the verses that we read this morning begin with the words, To him. It almost reads like an incomplete sentence. To him who alone does great wonder. Why does it, why is it written that way? What is it implying? Those things where it says to him, if I can get all grammatical on you for a second, those are elliptical statements. What's an elliptical statement? It means there's a dot, dot, dot there. There's an implied word or phrase that, that we are meant to fill in in our own minds as, as we read it. And what is the phrase that's implied all those times where it says to him? Two words, give thanks. That is also implied there. So even though the text only says give thanks, I say only, four times, really it's implied throughout the entire psalm. Every time it says to him who does this or to him who did that, it's give thanks to him because he did those things. So the psalm really never departs from that main theme of giving thanks and calling us to give thanks from the heart to the Lord. Now notice when the psalmist speaks of God in verse 4 doing great wonders, what he's doing here is this is kind of the heading. This is the heading of everything that follows. He's going to talk about a lot of the great wonders God has done in detail, one by one. Everything you read from verse 5 to basically the end of the psalm is really about the different great wonders, the many great wonders that God, our God, has has done. And the first one, look at verses 5 through 9 for a moment. The first one that he points us to, and it's not with uh, it's with good reason, is God's mighty acts of creation and providence. 
We might think to skip that, but we should not. The Bible starts there in Genesis, right? God's mighty acts of creation and and providence. Look at verses 5 through 9 where he writes, To him who by understanding or by wisdom made the heavens, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who made the great lights, for his steadfast love endures forever. To the sun to rule over the day, for his steadfast love endures forever. The moon and the stars to rule over the night, for his steadfast love endures forever. So what's he pointing us back to? That The creation account back in the early chapters of the book of Genesis. So God, our God, is to be praised and thanked from the very beginning of all creation. He is to be thanked. We should thank him for his act of creation and for his acts of providence. I don't know if you took the time this week when the when the rain broke, uh, when the when the sky cleared up, but maybe some other time. Have you ever looked up at the sky at night here in Ramona on a clear night, especially right now on a cold night when the clouds are gone? Uh, this time the view uh, up here I think is magnificent at night. You see more stars. You know, we before we moved up the hill, you know, years ago when we got called to this church. We were commuting from Escondido, and one of the first things I remember, we moved, it was a rainy night in November, about a year, about, what, eight years ago now, and it was pouring down rain, but then, you know, down the hill you'd look up at the sky at night, and you'd see some stars, but it, you know, it was almost like something was, you know, it wasn't smog, but something blocked it out, but when you moved up the hill, it's like somebody flipped the switch, and you saw everything, they were all just everywhere, we looked at it this week, and I was amazed at how clear the sky was and how many stars you could see. Have you ever looked up at all those countless stars at night on a clear night and just been reminded that it's it's our God who made the great lights? You're reminded of God's glory, God's almighty power. Have you thanked God for it? You just look up and be reminded of God's goodness, his steadfast love to us in Christ. And what does Genesis say about it? Uh, About when God made the sun, moon, and the stars? Remember in the text of Genesis chapter 1? God saw all that and he saw that it was good. So we give thanks to the Lord for he is good and we also thank him for his creation, which is also good. God is good and what God has made is good. And so we thank God for it. You know, God did not have to create anything. Did God need to create the heavens and the earth? Did he need to create anybody in this room? Does God need, by definition, anything or anyone? No, he does not. He is perfect in every way and self-sufficient in every way, and yet he did so. God created all these things, and all of creation belongs to him. All of creation is one of his great wonders that he has wrought, and we should never cease thanking God for it. All of creation itself is evidence, and it's an example of the steadfast love of God that never fails and endures forever. Psalm 19, verse 1, says, The heavens... Declare the glory of God in the sky above, proclaims his handiwork. We'll also, in a similar way, let the heavens above be a constant reminder to you of the goodness of God and the fact that his steadfast love endures forever and give him thanks from the heart. Let the stars at night give you a reminder to thank God from the heart for his great wonders in creation. The second thing the psalmist points us to in a little bit more detail is God's great wonders in salvation. Not just creation, not just providence, but God's great wonders and salvation. That's his theme from verses 10 through 24. The second of those great wonders is God's work of salvation. The first thing the psalmist does is point us to creation. Now he points us to God's 
acts of salvation and redemption. And he points us to it in a place you might not think to think to look for, and that's the books of Exodus through Deuteronomy. In Exodus 12, you might be familiar with that text. That is the, the story of them actually leaving and being uh, leaving Egypt. Exodus 12, you read of what verse 10 says, God striking down the firstborn of Egypt, the tenth of the ten plagues. And of verse 11 says, bringing Israel out from among them. That's what chapter 12 of Exodus is about. And it's not an accident that by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the psalmist doesn't go through all ten plagues, does he? He singles out the last one. That doesn't mean the first nine weren't important, but it, what, what I think it does mean, what it, the reason for it, I think, in some ways, is what happened on the night of the tenth plague? It was the night of the Passover. It was the night of the Passover sacrifice. What he's doing is he's kind of summing up all the ten plagues under the heading of the last one. But the Passover... Who and what does it point us to? It points us to the Lamb of God, the true Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul says elsewhere in the Scripture in the New Testament, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us one time, once for all time. I think that's one of the reasons why the psalmist, by the inspiration of the Spirit, singles this one out. He points us, it reminds us of, to look back to, The Passover was Exodus chapter 14, where we read what the psalmist says in verse 12, or verse 4, yeah, verse 12 rather, when it says, with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, that God, verse 13, divided the Red Sea in two, and then quote the next verse 14, making Israel pass through the midst of it, and then verse 15, overthrowing Pharaoh and his his host, his army, in the Red Sea. All that is pointing us back to Exodus chapter 14, with the account of the Red Sea and God's mighty wonder in redeeming and saving his people by that great miracle. So what the psalmist does here is he sums up very briefly, it might have seemed like a long psalm as we were reading it, but he's summing up for us briefly much of what the books of Exodus through Deuteronomy teach us. In fact, he does all that in one verse also, in verse 16, where he writes, To him who led his people through the wilderness, for his steadfast love endures forever. That sums up a a great part of the Pentateuch, the first five books of your Bible, is the wilderness wanderings. The people wandered for 40 years after they left Egypt until God got them to the border and into uh, the promised land. John Calvin points this out in his comments on the verse, verse 16. He says, much is included in the single expression that God was the leader of his people through the wilderness. It was only by a succession of miracles of various kinds that they could have been preserved for 40 years in a parched wilderness where they were destitute of all the means of of subsistence. Can't say the word. So that we are to comprehend under what is here stated the various proofs of divine goodness and power which are mentioned by Moses as having been vouchsafed in feeding his people with bread from heaven, in making water to to flow from the rock, in protecting them under the cloud from the heat of the sun, giving them a sign of his presence in the pillar of fire, preserving their raiment entire with innumerable other instances of mercy which must occur to the reader. In other words, when it says God got them to the wilderness or led them through the wilderness, you're to think of all those things. Forty years God protected them, led them, 
guided them and provided things for them, everything they needed for life, in the middle of a desert. He gave them manna from heaven, the bread from heaven. Remember in the, in the Gospels, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He's talking about the manna. He's saying, that was me. That was a picture, a foreshadowing of me. The water that flowed from the rock. They had no water to get in the desert. God provided from a rock. When, they, when Moses struck the rock, water flowed and they all had water. That rock, Paul says, that followed them was whom? Christ, a picture of Christ who gives us the water of life. All of that is to be summed up, is summed up by the psalmist in verse 16. Then in verses 17 through 24, the psalmist details briefly some of the great kings that God struck down in defending his church in the Old Testament. Not only he struck down Pharaoh in verse 15, he also, verse 19, struck down Sihon, king of the Amorites. You can read about that in Deuteronomy chapter 2. There's your homework for the day. Uh, verse 20, he struck down Og, king of Basham. Deuteronomy chapter 3 tells you about that. And then it says in verse 21, he gave their lands, quote, as a heritage to Israel, his servant. Verse 22. That's the entrance into the promised land. That's them coming to the, the border of the promised land, God beginning to give them victory over the enemies, their enemies and giving them their lands. It's, it's talking about the beginning of the conquest of Canaan, the promised land. So you could say that Psalm 136, verses 10 to 24, I'm going to show my age here, is kind of the, the Reader's Digest or the Cliff's Notes version of Exodus through Deuteronomy. All those books are kind of summarized very briefly for us here in the psalm. And all of those things we just mentioned and, and more are evidences and examples of God's steadfast love and mercy toward his people, which endures forever. I hope this changes how you read your Old Testament. The psalmist here is teaching us how to read the Old Testament, especially the Exodus account and what follows. It's a picture of the gospel of Christ in our day, and it's a picture of God's faithfulness in his steadfast love to us as well as to them. So, brothers and sisters, we said at the beginning of this study that God's mercies towards his people Israel in the Old Testament were a type or a foreshadowing of his mercies to you and I in the gospel. Again, the Exodus, the Exodus that he talks about was a picture of God sending his son to redeem us from slavery to sin. Christ was the one, the prophet greater than Moses who was to come, Deuteronomy 18.15. And what did Christ do? Christ was one greater than Moses. He redeemed, Moses redeemed the people from slavery in Egypt. Christ redeemed us from slavery to sin. Christ was also our true Passover that has been sacrificed for our salvation from sin. The wilderness wanderings that God preserved and led his people through, they're a type and picture of our pilgrimage to heaven in this life. Right now, it may not feel like you're on a pilgrimage, but you and I, if you're a Christian, you are on a pilgrimage from this life to heaven, and God is faithful to preserve you and to keep you and to guide you just as he did them in your pilgrimage on your way to your eternal home in heaven. This world is not your home. Heaven is, and God will get you there by his sustaining mercies and grace. God sustained Israel throughout that time of their pilgrimage, and that is a testimony to you and I that God will not fail to get you safely home as well. The conquest of Canaan, that's mentioned briefly towards the end of our psalm, I think is evidence that the Great Commission will not fail. It cannot fail. 
All the nations, remember they were being conquered by, by God through his people as they marched through the promised land and God gave them their lands and even towns and cities. Well, the Great Commission will not fail. All the nations will be made disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. All the nations will become a footstool for his feet, even as Psalm 110 verse 1 talks about. God, God the Father tells Christ, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a what? A footstool for your Feet. That is going to happen through the gospel, through the preaching of the gospel in the church. And so when you read the redemptive history of the Old Testament of Israel, that is your redemptive history, our redemptive history as well for all those who are in Christ by faith. That's not just old, dry, dusty history. That's our history. That's our family history in the family of God and Jesus Christ. And so all of that, all of these things we think about and read about in the Old Testament all those things are abundant testimony to you and to me that we have every reason to give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. I mentioned uh, some of the songs that are commonly sung that have some mindless repetition. I think this is one more reason we need to sing the psalms and why we try to make that our habit as often as we can in our service. There's a lot of theology, a lot of gospel doctrine taught in the Psalms for us to sing as Lamentations chapter 3 verses 22 to 24 puts it I think it says the same thing that the Psalm does Lamentations 3 22 to 24 says the steadfast love same word the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases his mercies never come to an end they are new every morning great is your faithfulness the Lord is my portion says my soul therefore I will hope in him. In other words, again, God finishes, our God finishes what he starts. Paul says as much in Philippians 1 verse 6, he says, and I am sure of this, what's he sure of? That he who began a good work in you will do what? Will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's the message of Psalm 136. That's the message of Paul in Philippians 1.6, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So thank God for his great salvation that is ours by his grace through his steadfast love in Jesus Christ, because his steadfast love to us in Christ endures forever. Let's pray.